Well, there's a story about a, a wealthy, wealthy businessman who was walking along the seashore and he came across a fisherman who was just sitting on the sand beside his boat, just looking at the ocean and enjoying himself. And this wealthy businessman looked at him and says, why aren't you out there fishing? And the fisherman says, I've caught enough fish for today. Well, the businessman, of course, says, why don't you go catch some more? Catch more than you need. Catch more. And the fisherman says, well, what would I do with them? And the businessman says, well, you could earn more money. You could buy a better boat. So you could go deeper out into the ocean and catch more fish, catch bigger fish, catch better fish, make more money. You could probably go get some really good nylon nets instead of those things you've got in your boat. You could get a bigger motor on your boat so you could get in and out quicker when the weather changes. It would cause you to experience so much more success. Eventually you could have a fleet of boats. And the fisherman looks at him and asks him, well, then what would I do? And the, the businessman says, you could sit down and enjoy life. The fisherman says, what do you think I'm doing? Sitting down and enjoying life. Contentment is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. I want to do a very brief review on a couple of points from last week as we were talking about stewardship. And really, they, they are so foundational. They need to be the building blocks that we grasp a hold of and that we understand so that there is a new level of understanding about generosity and stewardship and what God has asked us to do as the body of Christ. We mentioned in Acts 20, verse 35, where it says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember a day in my own life, it was way more blessed to receive than it was to give. It was way more fun to get, to get, to get, than to give. Which would be normal for the fallen nature of man, sinful nature of man, the selfish nature of man. That would be normal. But once we become born again and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there is a transformation that takes place. God will give us a new heart. He gives us a new attitude. He gives us a new life in Christ. We are born as takers and God is a giver. And when He draws us and woos us and gives us the grace to accept Him as our Lord and Savior, this new life, we should become givers. The Gospel message, the simple Gospel message of us being sinners and Jesus coming as a sacrifice to pay for our sins when we grasp a hold of it and we understand it and we believe it, it should transform our lives in a way that people would notice and would bring glory and honor to God. Knowing and understanding biblical principles about our possessions, I believe will develop a life that will be life-changing in each one of us. I believe there are so many issues and so many things in our lives that cause us grief, cause us pain, cause us emotional suffering that are simply residual effects of not understanding stewardship and generosity. 
There are principles in the Word of God that talk about obedience bringing blessing, great blessing into our lives. And I'm not just talking financial blessing. I think I shared last week, there are so many issues that we have as believers that we shouldn't have to have. Christ died to set us free of those things. But a lot of His promises in the Word, though they are absolutely true, require a certain act of obedience from us. And for Him to bless us the way He desires to, the Bible tells us clearly, obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings cursing. And I believe that cursing comes in so many different forms. And I believe a lot of it is caused by us not understanding stewardship, contentment, godliness. Three quick things that we talked about last week. One, foundational. God created everything. In the beginning, God spoke and created all that exists. In Colossians 1.16, it says, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. By Him and for Him. For His glory. For His purposes. All things were created. And that includes us. And not only did He create all things, God owns all things. He owns it all. And it says to, in Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, are His. That's us. He created us and He owns us. So this attitude that we have that it's, it's my life and I'll live it any way I blank well please is a lie from the pit of hell. It's not your life, it's His life. You belong to Him. And we are called to steward that life so that our life brings Him glory. Foundation one, He created all things. Foundation two, He owns all things, including us. And then the third thing we mentioned last week is He delegates responsibility. Most all things, not all things, but most things that God accomplishes happens through His people. He promises to meet our needs, and I shared some examples last week. Whatever our needs are, you have a need for food? Uh-huh. Somebody cooked the food, somebody prepared the food, somebody grew the food, somebody processed the food, somebody shipped the food, you name it, they did it. And he meets my needs. Housing, clothing, go right on down the list. He's using people like us to meet needs. Matter of fact, he builds his church and he builds his kingdom primarily through people. We are called to go and make disciples of all nations. We are called to go and share the gospel. We get to be a part of that. So we have a role to play in even that. And of course, stewarding includes all of His creation. Now, I'm not a green environmental, environmentalist fanatic by any means. You probably all know that. But we're called to steward His whole creation. We need to steward it well to bring Him glory. So we're going to continue this morning and we're going to be talking about Godliness with Contentment. It's the title of the message. Godliness with Contentment equals great gain. If you're into mathematical formulas, here's an easy one. Godliness plus contentment equals great 
gain. And we're going to talk about that in just a few moments, but I want to spend some time talking about one of those subjects that you know, nobody in church wants to ever hear about, and that's money. Money. What is money? Really, if you want a simple definition of money, money is simply a medium of exchange. That's all it is. A medium of exchange. You take the money and you exchange it for something else. That's what it is. It's in the form of coins and banknotes in our country. But it's amazing what is used as medium exchange around the world. And anything could be a form of money, quote unquote. Actually, they say there's three kinds of money. Commodity money. Commodity money, from American standpoint, our worldly standpoint, gold would be an example. Gold has a value, it's a commodity. And it's considered to have this value that you can exchange for other things. Other parts of the world, that commodity that may have value could be grain, it could be a chicken, it could be a dozen eggs, it could be anything. But there's that type of money or medium exchange called a commodity. Then there's also what's called flat money, and that would be the one we'd be most familiar with. But it's interesting, this kind of money, I don't even have a $20 bill or $100. Anybody got a $100 bill they want to give me? Chickens. You notice I said, give me. <coughs> this kind of money, in and of itself, has way less value than the value that it represents. If I had a $100 bill up here, what would, and I said, what's this worth? What would you say? Well, it's this tiny little piece of paper with some printing on it and this little magic magnetic strip in it. I don't know, it's maybe worth a dime or a nickel. And I'd say, Cal, I want all you got. I'll give you a nickel for every, I'll give you 20 cents for every one of them. The reality is its value has been determined and its value in the, as a medium exchange has been established by someone else. That's our type of money, flat money. And then there's also what's called, <coughs> the third type of money is just bank money. Bank money is money that obviously deals with the bank, and it's a, a credit that the bank extends for us, an example would be writing a check. But whatever type it is, it's all about it simply being a medium of exchange. Now money in and of itself, and this is what I really wanted to get to, money in and of itself is amoral. What does amoral mean? Neither good nor bad. Money in and of itself has no power, no authority. There's no magnetic force in money that keeps drawing us to it. Money in and of itself can't do a single good thing, and it can't do a single evil thing. Money is amoral. It can only do what people tell it to do in an exchange. You can do just about anything you want with money. But in and of itself, it's not good or evil. Most of us are familiar with or have heard the Scripture dealing with money. Money is the root of all evil is not the verse, is it? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When we talk about the love of money, we're talking about an idol in our life. And we can put in there material possessions. Don't have to just think of money. 
but it's something that will start to absolutely control us, and there's this root in us. And it's the root that needs to be removed from us. Money, when it grabs a hold of us, it's like a snare, it's like a trap. And we get ensnared in it, we get trapped in it, and all of a sudden we start making foolish decisions, bad choices, Matter of fact, there are sins that you and I can't even get into unless we got enough money. And it's not about how much money you have. It's not about how much little, how little money you have. It's about your attitude towards money. What do you do with money? It's a simple concept, money. A medium exchange. It's a simple concept. But why is there such an attachment to money in our hearts? Why does the Bible talk so much about money and possessions and stewardship? I gave you some statistics last week about how many times money and possessions and stewardship are talked about. Over 2,000 times in the Bible, twice as many times as faith and prayer are even mentioned. Why? I believe a couple of reasons at least. One is many of us as Christians do not have a proper biblical understanding of money. And two, and probably more importantly, God knows what kind of attraction there is in our hearts or can be in our hearts towards money. He knows the kind of trap it can be in our hearts. He knows where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he warns us over and over and over and over in his word about money. Even though it may be amoral, it's not good or it's not evil, it will lead us into all kinds of trouble if we don't have a proper biblical understanding of it. So it's critical that we do. So we're going to look at a Christian view of money from the perspective of the Bible, in particular the Apostle Paul, as he writes a number of different letters to different churches, trying to educate them about money. Now he commands us, God commands us, in Hebrews 13, verse 5, it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And it's always interesting to me when I come up with those, come, come across those scriptures again and I see how they're really used in context. Most of us know that scripture. I use it all the time for a lot of different reasons. God will what? Never leave you. He'll never forsake you. But you know, most of the time I use it, I'm using it in a different context than it's used here in the scriptures. Isn't that weird how we use things and we miss the context? Not that it can't be applied other ways. Absolutely. But when Paul is using it, or the writer of Hebrews is using it here, it's in this context about the love of money. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Don't let it control you. Because I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you all the time. My promises are faithful and true. You don't need to get so focused on money. Focus on me. And your needs will be met. And again, as I said earlier, it's not about how much money or how little money. If we don't have any money, we think all the problems are because we don't have any money. 
I know and I am convinced in my heart that if I had a whole lot of money, I'd be in big trouble because I wouldn't know how to handle it. I'd find new ways to get in trouble. So it's not about how much or how little. Shoot, if I had a whole lot of money, you know what I'd do? I'd worry all the time what I was going to do with all that money. And how many of you were going to try and come get some of it from me? You know, one of those fallacies that I, I, I hear and I think and I've said is, you know, if I won the lottery, and I understand I'd have to buy a ticket, but if I won the lottery, I'd give half of it to the church. Bull. Loney. If you can't write a check and tithe 10%, you wouldn't give half of your lottery winnings to the church. I guarantee it. If you can't write a check for $10, you can't write one for $100. It's just the way we are. Unless we understand stewardship. and Unless we understand what it means to be content. Unless we understand those foundational truths. He created it all. It's all His and He wants us to manage it responsibly as good stewards. For His glory. It's not about how little or how much. How many of you know it's difficult to be content? How many of you are content in all things? Go ahead, raise your hands. Good, we don't have to repent of lying. It's hard to be content. It's hard to be content about my family. It's hard to be content about my job. It's hard to be content about just about everything I can think of. And one of the reasons it's so hard to be content is we are being bombarded by messages almost 24-7 if we're up that much telling us how we don't have what we need to be happy. And if we just had more, life would be better. And this applies to homes and cars and little blue pills. And <laughs> Come on, you got it. All kinds of things. Everything. If I just had a prettier wife, or a younger wife, or a better looking husband who wasn't carrying around all that extra weight, I mean, it's all better. Just get, get rid of it. Buy more. Trade it in. Better. We get bombarded all the time. Our, our economy runs on human discontent. Isn't that nuts? Marketing. Advertising. I mean, shoot. Churches do it. You want to feel better? You come to church. You want to get rid of all your problems? Pray to Jesus. I mean, there's some truth in all of these things, but the reality is, except for Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, none of it will last. It just won't last. Paul writes a few things, and I'm going to give you a couple scriptures from two churches and then we're going to focus for a few minutes on a third letter to another church. Paul is writing about a proper view of money. The first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And to give you a little context to the scripture, Paul's been having a talk with God. And it goes something like this in the Nelson paraphrase. God, I got this thorn in the flesh. I don't like it. Please take it from me. Didn't work. He does it again. God, I got this thorn in the flesh. Please take it from me. It didn't work. God, I got this thorn in the flesh. Please take it from me. Three times it says he beseeched the Lord to get rid of this thorn in the flesh. And then we see that God answers. 
He says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and in insults and hardship and persecutions and difficulties. For what I am weak, then I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you. So Christ's power. What's Christ's power that Paul says will rest on him when he's content in any situation? The grace of God. We sometimes think of grace only from the unmerited favor. It is true. But the grace has a word in the original language or a meaning in the original language that means power. Paul says, I am willing. I am willing to suffer with all these things that the grace of God may be on my life, that the power of God will be on my life. He didn't need stuff. He wanted the power of God. He wanted the grace of God on his life. To the church in uh, Philippi, he writes these words in chapter 4. Context again. Paul is writing a letter and, and the, Philippian, the Philippian church had sent him an offering to help support him. And he's thanking them and telling them it was a good thing that they did. But then he says these words, starting in verse 11. I'm not saying these things because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. There's another one of those verses we use all the time, right? Look at the context here, the actual context. He's talking about being content. When he has little or he has a lot, he's content. Why? What's the secret? He says, I have learned the secret. What's the secret? Christ is the secret. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It doesn't matter whether I haven't got any food or I got all kinds of food. It doesn't matter whether my pockets are empty or they're overflowing with money. It doesn't matter because I know I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And notice he says twice in those verses, I have learned. I have learned. Contentment takes effort because it doesn't come naturally. I have learned to be content. And now I'm going to go to a letter that Paul also wrote. This time he wrote it to Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's writing to Timothy. And the, the first part of the chapter, especially verses 3 through 5, he's talking to Timothy and Timothy says, I've got to warn you, there are some people out there. They're messing with the doctrine. I would even say they're prostituting the doctrine. There's some false teaching going on. And they pretend to be godly or interested in godly things is for one reason. Personal gain. He says they're out there. Be aware of them. And in verse 5 of that chapter, of chapter 6, he finishes with the words, in verse 5, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They think 
that godliness is a means of gain. Some translations might even say they think religion is a means of gain. This was around in the time of Paul. We shouldn't be surprised it's still around today. One of the reasons that so many people and so many pastors and, and so many people don't want to hear about money and pastors don't want to preach about money is because there's been so much of that out there in the last decades. Actually, centuries, if you believe Paul. Using godliness, supposedly, for personal gain. They're more concerned about what they can earn or get or receive, whether it's fame or fortune, power or prestige, than they are in the glory of God. And I think most of us heard enough, saw enough, that it made us want to vomit. The way doctrine and, and scriptures are twisted and distorted for personal gain. I despise that. I hope you do. And in verse 5, that's how it ends. And then he goes on and says, but don't get me wrong. Godliness is a good thing and it can be about gain. He goes into verse 6 and he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness. What does Paul mean by godliness? I believe what he means by godliness is simply this. There is a very genuine Christian life based on faith in Jesus Christ and a relationship with God and it's being lived out in this new way of life. Godliness. It's not about religion. It doesn't mean anything if you can quote Scripture if it doesn't do anything in your heart. It doesn't mean anything if you go to all the Bible studies and you go home and it doesn't change a thing in your life. I believe Paul's talking about true faith being lived out. Godliness. Plus contentment. Contentment is a, here it's a Greek word, oratakia. And what it means is self-sufficient. But it means that in a good way, it's a positive way. It means I am totally detached from material goods. I'm totally detached in a healthy way. You know, I mean, there's some material goods that I kind of like, you know, food and clothes, a few things like that. But he says they don't have control over me. That's what he's saying. Godliness, this real deal as a Christian, plus contentment. I am not, a, these things, these, they don't control me. Money doesn't control me. Fancy cars, they don't control me. What people say and what people think, they don't control me. None of that controls me. His perspective, I believe, Paul's perspective, is as a Christian, our goal should be to have a, a real genuine relationship with God because he's our source of contentment and a healthy detachment from material things. In combination. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. And that great gain is primarily spiritual value. However, God blesses us with all kinds of blessings, material blessings, relational blessings, all kinds of things. Because that's what He wants to do because He loves us. In verse 7 it says, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. I believe Paul's point here is simply this. Get an eternal perspective. Get an eternal perspective. If we really get an, etern an eternal perspective, we will become more detached from worldly things. 
It's a natural result. If I begin to understand I came into the world butt naked and I'm going to leave the same way, there's nothing I'm going to take. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says, there is nothing, there is no labor of your hands that you can take with you. So think eternally. Think spiritually. And as we do that, the things of the world, these physical things are designed for this world. And this world is nothing but a temporary home for us. They have no eternal value whatsoever in and of themselves. And in verse 8 he says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Wow. Talk about a minimalist. Notice, he never says anything negative about living beyond the minimum here. He might even have been just thinking of Jesus as an example. You know, there's been teaching over the years that Jesus was rich. He was a wealthy man. They come up with all kinds of things, even like his cloak was a seamless cloak. You had to be really rich to have a seamless cloak. I mean, that's all hogwash. It's rubbish. He didn't even have a place to put his head, it said. They relied on a number of ladies with wealth to fund the ministry. Think about that man. Real contentment and material prosperity don't have an impact on one another. True contentment doesn't depend on how much I have. As a matter of fact, have any of you ever wanted something so bad you could just about taste it? And you'd do whatever it took to get it. I'll work extra hours. I'll save all my money. I mean, you ever see your children, they, they want something. You say, well, you save your money, you can have it. And you're hoping they change your mind. They save their money, they earn their money, and they go buy it, and they come home, and it's the hottest thing in their hand, little hands for about 12 hours. And then it's just there again. Us adults are the same way. None of these things will satisfy. There's only one thing that will truly satisfy, and that's Christ. Christ. And Paul is making this point that real contentment and material prosperity have nothing to do with one another. It's this concept of an eternal perspective a sense of detachment from worldly goods and an eternal perspective that really lay the groundwork for us to be content. In conclusion, he codes, and I'm going to conclude too, but he did this. In verses 9 and 10, it's like a warning. He's like, he tells us what it all is, and this is what it should mean, and this is how you should handle this stuff. And then he says, People who want to get rich, that's their desire, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. I mean, if you want to do a word study on a verse, do a word study on that verse. Man, there's some strong words there. They desire to get rich, fall into temptation, a trap, foolish and harmful desires, plunge men, plunge them into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We've heard that part, but then look what it says. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with grief, sorrows, pains. 
It's like being pierced with thorns. Paul's speaking in pretty strong terms. And the love of money is the root that needs to be removed. In Mark chapter 10, there's a story about someone the Bible just refers to as the rich young ruler. Many of you remember the story. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And basically he says, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says to him, take all your possessions, sell them, give it to the poor, and you'll be with me in heaven forever. And then we almost see this word picture of this rich young ruler. His countenance just drops. And this morning when I was looking at this again, I I was trying to picture the faces on the disciples as they were hearing Jesus say these things. And the rich young ruler, it says he turns and he walks away. And then Jesus says these words in verse 23. He looked around and he said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words. But Jesus said it again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, Who in the world can get saved then? And Jesus said to them, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Fueled by greed and eager for money, it's easy to lose your way. There's nothing wrong with being rich. Used rightly for the kingdom of God, it's an amazing thing to be rich. There's nothing wrong if you happen to be poor unless it's because of a whole lot of bad, bad decisions, wrong motives. We're not all created to be rich. We're not all created to be poor. It's not about the rich and the poor. It's about the heart of contentment and a spirit of generosity. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's good for us every now and then to meditate on that. Am I content? Am I content? Am I content with my life? Am I content with my family? Am I content? Doesn't mean we can't improve, don't don't distort the truth. But are we content or are we always desiring just one thing more, just one thing more, just one thing more? Something different. We're fighting the culture to have hearts that are content. It takes work, it takes effort to learn to be content. But it's possible with God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you are a generous God. That you desire to pour your blessings out upon your children. God, I pray that as your children, 
we have hearts that are right before you. God, that material goods, money, will not control us. The desire for these things will not control us. God, that all that you bless us with is for us to steward, to bring you glory and honor. God, I pray that you would help us to learn these things just as Paul said he learned to be content. That he found the secret of contentment and it was Jesus Christ. That as hard as it is in our culture, in this world we live in today to be content, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Lord, I pray these things become foundational in our lives as we continue to grow and mature into Christ-likeness. Father, I pray you would speak to each one of our hearts about all the things that you would like us to be doing as stewards of all that you created and all that you own that we would be the best husbands and wives, we would be the best parents, fathers and mothers, that we would be the best children, we would best be the best employees, God, we would be the best neighbors. Father, that we would do all these things to bring glory and honor to you. And that's our prayer this morning, God, that all that we do, all that we say, all that we think would please you as our Heavenly Father. As we go our different directions today, Lord, I pray that you would go before us, that you would watch over us, that you would protect us, not only from the natural things that are around us, but God, from the attacks of the enemy. Pray you would continue to give us your heart for the lost and let your love overflow from us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name that you would receive all the glory and honor. Amen.